we'll be looking at we wrapping up the major part of this sermon series this morning as we look at these few verses in 1 Timothy chapter 3 beginning in verse 14 I'm just going to tell you it's going to be very difficult to concentrate with the aroma that is coming from behind me. Not not once have we had a fellowship meal that has been this distracting this early. <laughs> this early. This early. It's a wonderful smell. 1 Timothy chapter 3. Let me read verses 4 through 16. Pray and then get to it. 14, I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. 16, great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up into glory. Pray with me. Lord, we look to your word that we might better glorify you as a church. Specifically, us here in Ozarks Bible Church. Show us the wondrous truth here in your word and in your son. By your spirit, we ask this. Amen. So I want to warn you this morning, this is much of um, a call to arms than anything. A call for the soldiers of Christ to... Prepare for battle. Um, This morning is to sort of culminate what it looks like to seek the glory of God in our church, our local church, to see the duties that's been given to us, to fulfill the purpose and mission that God has given to us and called us together to do. Like I said, this is going to be the sort of the apex, the finality of the overall look at um, the glory of God in the church based on the, the short text in Ephesians 3.21, which again is to Him be glory in the church in Jesus Christ. And uh, we'll, we'll, we'll visit this some more through the coming weeks, but um, probably in the evening. And we'll fill some things out in more detail. But this morning, I I want to begin by reminding us of the past four weeks. Um, Because what's happening in 1 Timothy 3, 14 and 16, what we're going to focus on, I'm just going to highlight some words. Um, Paul's writing for a purpose because he's not able to make it. probably going to delay. He's writing with the purpose of teaching Timothy how to teach the church to behave in church. And he uses many phrases, the household of God, the church of the living God, the pillar and buttress of truth. And so what this morning is, is going to be sort of bringing everything together over the last four weeks. The first few weeks, we really focused on the glory of God. We wanted to know what is the glory of God? What, how important is, is it? And it's almost difficult for me to say how important is the glory of God because it feels like such an understatement just to say that. Because the glory of God is preeminent. It is primary. It is God's first priority and our number one pursuit. And how do we know this? Again, some of this is going to be... Uh, a review of where we've been, but it only is to help us to make sense of what Paul is writing to Timothy here in chapter 3. How do we know that the pursuit of God's glory is our greatest purpose? It's because He made you out of His glory in His image. 
And not just you and I, but all people were given and created in the image of God in order to reflect the glory of God throughout all of creation. But how does the story of the image bearers work out? All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So one would think that if God's intended purpose and creation and putting his image into man is to glorify himself in all creation, you would perhaps consider it a failed effort. But, truth be known, it was just the beginning of his purpose and will. We mentioned a couple weeks ago that God desires not just to make his glory known, himself known through what he has created, but also in that he is a God who redeems. He's a God who loves and saves. We mentioned again a couple weeks ago that we can observe in creation the glory of God. We can see a sunset, the ocean, the birth of a baby, the, the complexity of the human brain, and in seeing all of, all of those beautiful displays of God's glory and his work, his eternal power and divine nature, it is yet but just a taste of the glory of God that's revealed through the gospel of Jesus Christ. When his creatures failed to display his glory and his creation, he did something. He sent his son, the son of God, the second person of the Trinity, to do what they could not do, to live a life of the fullness that they were intended to live. Not for themselves, not for their families, not for their bank accounts, not for the American dream, but for the glory of God. And Christ Jesus did this. He lived to the complete glory of God in love and obedience. But the life, the life of the Son was not the fullness of the revelation of the glory of God. But that was complete when him who did no wrong and lived fully to the glory of God died for the sake of sinners and the purpose and the will of the Father. Displaying not only created glory, but gracious glory. Hebrews 1 says that the Son, the Son of God, is the heir of all things, and it was through him that the world was created. He, the Son, is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. But he doesn't stop there. In showing the gloriousness of the Son, he says, And he came to make purification for sin. But so much is in that one statement. It came through not just his life and his power, but in his humility and his death. And in that time, the glory of God was made the most known to mankind. It was in the Son of God's death that the glory of God was exalted the greatest. So not only do we see His eternal power and divine nature in creation, but through the gospel. This is, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say the word gospel a lot today. Through the gospel, the life and death of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, we see the love of God, the grace of God, the forgiveness of God. Those three things cannot be known. In just viewing the sunset. And ever since that moment in time, the life, death, and resurrection of Christ, here's where we want to understand. There have been a people who has seen and known His glory. God has opened the blind eyes of these people. He has raised them from the spiritual dead and given them life. He has, as Paul would state in 2 Corinthians 4, 6, shown in their hearts, these people, shown in their hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And who are these people? It is the church. This has been 
So glory is where we started this series. The church is how we finish it and combine it all together. God's glory in the church. We got to ask for a second in order to understand. And if you if you recall, I guess it would have been a couple weeks ago we introduced the reality that what I just described to you was the present glory made known to the church. But that there's more than just God making himself known and revealing his glory to the church, but he has a purpose for it. And ultimately we found uh, last week that that purpose is to worship him, therefore exalt his glory, and for the church to be the source from which salvation is obtained. And when someone obtains salvation, what do they become? A worshiper. And so the third thing in that statement was that the church then, to, to, to accomplish the purpose of God revealing his glory, is then for the church to pursue his glory. And today is how we will see all of that coming together in 1 Timothy chapter 3 with also some application from all of the scripture But there's a key thing that we have to understand, and this is going to be, as I said, a a repetitive theme for the rest of this morning. What created these people? What created the church? Romans 1.16 says that the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. That's just a, a, a great way of saying the gospel is what creates the church. A group of believers, whether they be Jew or Gentile. The proclamation of the gospel is like the planting of a seed in the soil of the soul of a sinner. And out of the seed is life, faith, knowledge, love, obedience, and righteousness. Only through the gospel can those things manifest themselves within a sinner. And what does that make that sinner? A saint. A holy one. A Christian set apart for, for God by God. A believer. God to that person has made himself known. He is seen by faith. God has revealed his glory to all saints, to all Christians, and to all believers. And he has called them together, collectively or corporately, as the church, the assembled of God. And now here you sit today in what? A church. You sit here as a gathered people who have beheld the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But I want to make a distinction right now. Because we're all currently sitting in a church. But we're not all currently beholding the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. There could be some of us here who sit in the walls And are in the church but may not be of the church. And it is that which takes place all throughout Sunday mornings. People who walk in the doors of a church and say, well, it's a good thing that I'm here. That makes me a part of the church. But what makes you a part of the church is that the gospel of Jesus Christ has gripped your heart and caused you to see God for who he really is. Holy And righteous, a hater of sin, a punisher of the wicked. The believer, the Christian, has the gospel revealed their true nature, their heart, their coldness, their love of their sin as a son of daughter, a son or daughter of Adam. For the one who's beholding the glory of God and is a member of the church, God has broken you over your sin against him. But not only that, he's shown you the beauty of his son. He's shown you who Jesus Christ is. 
and what he sent him to do. That though you are a rebel, an enemy, pursuing the world and Satan and the desires of your flesh, those who behold the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ understand that the Father crushed his Son by his wrath, his hot anger over your sin as he placed him on the cross. And so the distinction we make is that just because you walk in a church does not make you part of the church. If you have not clung to Christ as your only hope, do so today. Seek forgiveness today. Forgiveness of your failure to glorify God, of your rebellion against Him. Receive Christ by faith today and be given the eternal life that is promised by God through Jesus. Know Him as He is. See and know the glory of God through Jesus. Believe on Christ and make your faith, no, your faith known through public baptism. And then join the church of the living God, the living temple of God. And then let us behold the glory of God together. This is who the church is. See, the present revealed glory that we've just laid out here, again, has a purpose. And at the most foundational level, that purpose is for the knowledge of the glory of God to leave from us, to go out throughout His creation. In turn, what? Increasing His glory throughout all the world. And the way that we are to do this, first and foremost, at the most basic level I've already proclaimed, is by worshiping and being the source of salvation or being the source from which salvation is to be obtained. The church, Ozark's Bible Church, I'm gonna, I want you to understand this. This isn't just the church in general, but local churches, the church, the Ozark's Bible Church, is God's plan to building His kingdom. We're a part of that. To spread the gospel of Jesus Christ. To help build an eternal assembly, congregation of worshipers. That's what Jesus spoke to the woman at the well, right? Jesus said that the Father is seeking what? Such people to worship Him. And again, the force behind the purpose, the fulfilling of the purpose, that which is working is the gospel the life and the ministry of the Messiah, the one that the woman was still waiting for, and whom Jesus says, I am he who speaks to you. But then you see what he says to his disciples after his conversation with the woman at the well. What does he tell them? My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. What was that will? What was that work? To build an assembly, a congregation of eternal worshipers. And then again later in John 6 as we read, hear this, keeping all of this in mind, hear John 6 differently than you ever have, considering what God is purposed to do with the church in and through it, first and foremost through Jesus Christ. He says to the Pharisees, all that the Father gives me will come to me. What is he giving him? Worshippers. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And, what, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. And this is the will of Him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that He has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, not everyone, or that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life, and I will raise Him up on the last day. That is the gospel of Jesus Christ. The Father giving the Son eternal worshipers that, that Christ will save, redeem, and then not just that, raise them up into a glorified eternal life. The eternal consequences of the will of God and the work of the Son and the giving of the Spirit 
jump at us when we think about what they are trying to accomplish. The Father is seeking worshipers. He gives them to the Son. The Son keeps, saves, raises, and builds. Peter calls that a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. We're a part of that as a local church in Fulton County. Now, to make a bit of a transition here, I, I, I want to make a point for the sake of transition, but also for the idea of the church fulfilling our purpose, ultimately in our pursuit of God's glory. Again, the gospel, the main builder of the church, the driving force, the words of Christ It is the seed, remember, the power of God for salvation, the Jew and the Greek. And in John 6, later on, the last portion that we read, Jesus declares to us that force. When he says, after that grand statement about his will of the Father, he says, um, and he, he says, whoever looks upon me, the Son, and believes has eternal life, the question that we have to ask for a second is, what does it mean to look on the sun? Because I, I, I thought, like, nobody's seen him here, right? How does, how does anyone look at the sun and have eternal life? How does the work of anyone after Jesus' ascension to the right hand of the Father work in that capacity? Well, you've got to think about what Jesus said to Thomas. Because Thomas had a hard time believing, and Jesus walked up to him in his grace and said, Put your fingers through the holes in my hand and into my side. And then he says to Thomas, You have believed because you have seen. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. So to look upon Jesus is to believe. To believe what? The gospel. But what is the gospel? It is the direct words of Christ. It is Christ himself. Jesus says in John 6 at the end, it is the spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. And then listen carefully. He says, the words that I have spoken to you, and he's speaking to his audience, but especially, especially speaking to the apostles, his disciples, his followers at that time. He says, the words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. What has Jesus spoken to them? The very word of God. The gospel. The power of God for salvation. Peter would later follow this up with the statement to make it even clearer to us. When Jesus asked, hey, you guys going to walk away from me? Stop following me? And what's Peter say? Lord, to whom shall we go? Why? You have the words, the words, like you, Jesus, you have the words, you speak the words of eternal life. And what does he say? Not we've seen, we believed. And have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. What is revealing the present glory of God? What is building worshipers? What is calling us to be a congregation? It is. It is the words of Christ. The word of God creates and gives life, and the word has become flesh and dwelt among us. And when the word left, when Jesus left and ascended, he purposefully passed down what? His word. I'm sorry, you're probably thinking, where are you going with this? Just keep following The gospel is the word of Christ. Christ came and spoke the words. Christ left. He gave his word to his apostles in order to do what? To build his church. Remember in John 17, Jesus prays to the Father. After concluding the portion of his prayer for the eleven, he says this, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me 
through their word. Not that they might... Well, I'm going to skip this part for the sake of time. What you have in John 17 is Christ building a people through his word that he has passed down to his apostles so that the people can hear that word, know God, and then be a source for which they can then pass on and worship and know God. Jesus finishes John 15 tying up all of this, the word, the glory, the the church. He says, Father, I desire that they also, who? Those who believe from the 11 until the end of time, that those who believe whom you have what? Given me, right? This is the work of the Father and the Son all coming together in the, in the, in the outpouring of the Spirit. I desire that they also, all whom believe that you have given me, may be where I am. Now, <coughs> he's in Jerusalem in a, in a room. I don't think that's what he meant. He says, to see the glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. What is that? <coughs> that is the church in the eternal presence of the fullness of the glory of God. The fullness that Moses dare not look upon. So we sit here a couple thousand years later. On the other side of the world in respect to Jerusalem. Where the grand purpose started. And here we are. A church built on the word of Christ. And it's my prayer. That that statement means more to you today than it did four weeks ago. That we are the church of the living God. We are the congregation of Christ. And it is my hope that you feel the weight of what it means to be brought in and to be a member of the church, the assembled of God. (coughs) But today I want to make sure as we conclude this series that you understand that as the church, the purpose and mission continues through us. Collectively, corporately, Ozark's Bible Church. Here's what we must understand. The baton has been placed into our hands, and it's our turn to run the race. And what's the baton? It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. The word of God. We continue the mission through our pursuit of the glory of God as we hold to the word of God. 1 Timothy 3.15, he sums it up real well there, doesn't he? He says that the church is a pillar and buttress of the truth. Now, while that is the truth regarding the universal church across the globe, you think it has to be true for the local churches because if it were not true for the local churches, then it could not be true for the church, the universal church across the world. But we must take it a little bit further. If it's true for the universal church, it must be true for the local churches. And if it's true for the local churches, it must be true in you. It has to be. We have to be keepers, guardians, protectors of that which has been handed down to us. Guarding the good deposit, exalting the gospel through preaching, through teaching, that we might worship. It's the only way we can worship and proclaim to the world how and in who to find eternal life. And you know what we're going to have to do? Probably going to have to pass on the baton. We're not waiting just for us to leave. We need to be working on preparing the next generation of the church.
the last 40 or 50 years, the church has become very individualistic, as I've said time and time again. And it's because the church wanted to become, it wanted to grow. It wanted to spread the gospel throughout the world. But the problem is, is that it made it about the individual. And people didn't see the church as something that they had been made a part of or that they partake in or that they have been given to be worshipers as they gather together and to serve Christ. But instead, it has churches become throughout all the world in many places a place of self-motivation, reflection, not of worship, not of not as a, a, a servant or a soldier or, or a priest, a priest in the temple of God. But that is what we are as the household of God. We are the very place that he dwells. Um, look at uh, verse 14. In 1 Timothy chapter 3 with me. He says, uh, Paul tells Timothy, I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing you these things so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the house of Hold of God. A couple things stick out. First, first, the behavior or the conduct that Paul speaks of. Notice that it takes place in the church. If I delay, you may know how one ought to conduct himself or to behave in the church, which implies the mat. Which implies uh, it's what we do when we gather together. One thing we, we have to approach this passage and our purpose as a pillar and buttress of truth or a light in the world is to know that just because Jesus said there will be a day when you neither worship on this mountain or in Jerusalem doesn't mean that the people do not come together and worship. That, that is their call to come together and worship. No, it's as we discussed last Sunday evening. There is a coming of time where, yes, we'll neither worship on the mountain that Jesus met the Samaritan woman or in Jerusalem, but the reality is that the glory of God through the gospel spreading across the world, that there will be worshipers gathering, to, gathering together every Lord's Day through the gospel of Christ and the unfolding of the new covenant. And by the giving of the Spirit of God, true worshipers will come together in one spot, but all throughout the world. The church will gather in multiple places. So the conduct that Paul suggests isn't about just how we live our lives, okay? Like I'm, I'm, I, I can go be a Christian and, and be a pillar and a buttress of the truth as I walk away or I'm an individual, not as a member of the church. But specifically, he's speaking about as the saints are a gathered people. Um, I'm going to get a little geeky with you here for a second. Notice the word behave in the household of God. There, there's a Greek Old Testament, okay, that, that was translated right before Jesus uh, was born. And so the Jews, who knew their Old, Old Testament real well, but also knew Greek, wrote a Greek translation of the Old Testament. And it's called the Septuagint. And it's a fun little exercise to see the words that they chose in the Greek and which, how they applied it to the words of the Old Testament. Because it kind of gives you a sense of the way that they interpreted the Old Testament through the Greek, which is how the New Testament was written. So the word here in 1 Timothy chapter 3, household, is the same word that is used when David goes to Nathan and says, you know, Nathan... I'm living in a nice house. But God's been living in a tent. I want to build 
God a house. Same, same Greek word. I want to build a household for God. Uh, and you know how the story goes. God, through Nathan, says, oh, I, not, you're not going to build me a house. Um, he actually says, through Nathan to David, I'm going to make a house for you. When you die, David, I will raise up from your offspring after you, who shall come from your body. I will establish his kingdom forever. He shall build a house for for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. What do you have there? You You have a house built by the son of David. How's the book of Matthew begin? The genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David. Jesus says, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. And what does he come to accomplish? But to build a house, a house for God to dwell. Now, I want to begin winding down by connecting our conduct in church as the gathered assembly of God in Christ to fulfilling our purpose, specifically as the pillar and buttress of truth. Now, as you read the New Testament, especially the epistles, it becomes clear that there are a lot of commands for the church. Um, You know, qualifications for elders, for deacons, how to handle uh, widows, what to do in this situation or that situation. But there's a theme that runs throughout all of the New Testament, especially in the epistles, that becomes very obvious. Sometimes there's implications and not so direct. But it's very crucial to the purpose and the mission of the church. And that that conduct is participating in and protecting the Word of God. Participating in and protecting the Word of God. And also participating in and protecting the ordinances of God. Some of you might have heard the phrase word and sacrament, not really quite understood what it means or how it applies to the church, but what it means is the word of God and the Lord's Supper and baptism. Now, what's so important about the word of God and the ordinances? Well, I've I've hammered, you, I've hammered it home about the Word of God and how obvious it is, how the Scriptures uh, are so important. Um, but it might not be so obvious to you as I'm talking about the Lord's Supper and Baptism. Now, we're not going to have a huge understanding this morning about the Lord's Supper and Baptism, um, but we will touch on them here for just a second. As a Christian, as a Christian, I assume that you're a member of the church You are called not only to participate in the word of God on an individual level, but you're called to participate it, to participate in it together. And the same for the ordinances as we come together. You're called to protect and uphold, to participate and and to um, practice as a church, as the pillar and buttress of the truth. Those two things, the word of God, the ordinances, you want to know, Okay, what what are we supposed to be doing? What are we supposed to be pursuing? How is God to be glorified in and among us at Ozarks Bible Church? Well, it's those two things. Those two things are the ordained means by which God is going to accomplish anything through us. It's the only path to worship the word of God. And the ordinances. It's the only way to be the source for salvation for anyone to obtain. The word of God and the ordinances. It's so crucial that it's known as the marks of a true church. That wherever these things are not practiced rightly or denied, there is no church. A true church where God's glory in Jesus Christ has been revealed and remains through the presence of the Spirit while there is the right preaching of the Word and the right exercise of the ordinance of Christ throughout because of its purpose to do what it's been called to do. So 
Here, here, this is how I'm going to finish up. Why is the word of God so important to our accomplishing the purpose? Well, I've already explained it. Faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of Christ. Do not, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who believe in me through their word. You take away the scripture and you will have no new entrance into the kingdom. You take away the scripture and the true worshipers will either shrivel up in hunger or walk away in anger. Because the gospel is the words of eternal life. There's no life in Christ. And there's no life in a church. There's no faith. There's no new birth. There's no new creation. There's no trust. There's no righteousness. There's nothing apart from the preached and proclaimed word of God. It brings life. The valley of dry bones, Ezekiel prophesied. So I prophesied as he commanded, he said, and breath came into the the dead dry bones and they lived and stood on their feet. The gospel is, the, the word of God is the way that we go into all the world. Now, not only must we participate in the preaching and the proclamation of the gospel, you must protect it as a member of the body of Christ. You must uphold it. We believe that the congregation, the church, is made up of its members, are the final earthly authority. The church and its members have the duty to correct any who teach or preach a different gospel. And if he does not return him who is preaching or teaching a different gospel, then it is the duty and the obligation of we, the members of the church, to see that person out. So I want you to understand... We uphold the word of God so that people can come in. The source from which salvation is obtained. But we guard the word of God. And when someone taints, waters down, divides, or preaches a different gospel, we find their way out. This is our responsibility and our duty as the body of Christ. Brother Dan touched on it last week in Titus. Anyone who's causing division... Through unsound doctrine, it's where we get the word heretic from uh, Titus. Warn him once and twice, and if he does not repent, have nothing more to do with him. And you think, well, isn't that Titus' job? Isn't that the preacher's job? No, it's the preacher's job to prepare you to be ready to do that very thing. Because what if Titus is the one doing it? Then you got a problem on your hands. The final earthly authority in guarding the gospel sits in your hands. It's yours. Paul tells the churches at Galatia, we won't read it, but we know how it goes. If anyone, even I or an angel, is preaching another gospel, may he be damned. And do you know who he writes to? Not to the pastor, not to the elder, not to the deacon, not to a single person but to the churches at Galatia. You are the church of Ozarks Bible Church. In your pursuit of glory, if I stand here in this pulpit and preach another gospel, then with your collective votes, run me out. That is your responsibility as the body of Christ, as the church of God, in order to be pillar and buttress of truth. Because if you do not participate and keep the word, you are not a pillar and buttress of the truth. I want to just finish by saying this. In thinking about the ordinances. You might say, well, how can the ordinances be, baptism and the Lord's Supper, be such a big deal? They're not the Word of God. Isn't that where life comes? But I want you to understand how clever God is. Baptism and the Lord's Supper are just visible pictures of the Word of God. 
That's all they are. What is, a, what is happening when you see someone, or what is, being, what is being visualized when you see someone being baptized? Crucified old self, buried, resurrected to new life, raised with Christ, washed of all their sins. That's the word. And it's made known in our baptism. And we protect that. Because as it is a picture of the word of God, if we let any old willy-nilly get baptized because he likes to get wet and say hallelujah, you're tainting the word of God. You're not rightly representing the scriptures. And the same goes for the Lord's Supper. Think about the Lord's Supper, a broken body given to you. The blood that seals the new covenant. We're Christians. One of another. Members of one body. Servants of God. Not saved for ourselves, But sanctified in Christ Jesus. Set apart. For the sake of Christ. Called to be holy ones together. Not individuals, but together, calling upon the name of the Lord together. We're the church of the living God, the assembled of the living God, the pillar and buttress of truth. We are members of his body, members in this location at Ozarks Bible Church. We pursue the glory of God Corporately participating and protecting the word of God and the ordinance of Christ and the word made visible. And we do that so that Ozarks Bible Church will seek the glory of God and make it known in Fulton County. I'll finish by saying this. A couple things, actually. More of an announcement. This going through this series, you know, I kind of made made a little joke about not being Titus's responsibility, but it very much, I very much will be the one who has to give an account for what takes place here. And so prayerfully, I want to work and toil with the strength that the Lord will give me so that I can equip you to be the church. Um, First and foremost, it's standing here, Sunday by Sunday. Uh, I want to help you. If it's personally, you need assistance uh, in life or in study, Uh, I want... uh, I want to give you as many resources as you need or desire. There's some standing, sitting back there that's free for the taking. If something's not there and you need some help with a certain understanding or a Bible verse, whatever the case may be, I want to help you with it. Uh, one of the things I've also been thinking about is um, a midweek service. Uh, not just a midweek service, but moving our Sunday evening service to a Wednesday evening service. Uh, number Many reasons have crossed my mind. Number one, uh, I am one who believes very much that Sunday is not just for worship, but also for rest. Not just here, but also at home. And so moving our Sunday evening to Wednesday evening would allow for that opportunity. Um, but intentionally, not or being intentional on Sundays after church as we go home and rest and worship at home. But also because I believe two things why I think Wednesday night would be better for us spiritually was, well, I think probably have more of an opportunity for people to attend on sun or on Wednesday evenings as opposed to Sunday evenings. Um, but number two, 
is because it would cause me to be better prepared to deliver something for you on Wednesday evenings as opposed to Sunday evenings. Um, And then therefore, hopefully, equip you and educate you in a greater way than I have than I am currently on Sunday evenings because I know and you all know you may not say it but Sunday evenings are typically a little bit less edifying from at least my teaching and it's because of the uh, the lack of the amount of time that I'm able to put into it but to move it to a Wednesday evening would force force me multiple opportunities to be able to prepare um greater for a Wednesday evening service. All for the sake, all for the sake of us being edified and built up in the Word of God. That's really it. That's the only purpose. So be praying about that. Think about that. And we'll have that discussion uh, this coming members meeting, which will be next Sunday evening at 5 p.m. Um Finally, if you want to follow me as we follow and pursue the glory of God in the way that I'm trying to lay this out, I want to warn you. If you want to pursue the glory of God, to participate and protect the word, you will be attacked. We will be attacked. The authorities, the rulers, and the cosmic powers over the darkness will not stand for it. But I know, I know that if we pursue the glory of God together, I'm certain That the only way to be glorified with God and Jesus Christ is to suffer with him. And that's it. But to suffer for the glory of God is the most joyous thing you could ever do. And I also know that nothing can separate us from the love of God and Jesus Christ. Nothing. Let's pray.